Federal employees on the front lines of national security and law enforcement sometimes need a bit more care and attention than others. Catherine Emerson has long experience in this branch of human resources. The former chief human capital officer of the Homeland Security Department, she's now deputy attorney general and chief human capital officer at Justice. We discussed some of the current federal HR challenges, including ensuring employees have the technology they need. We work closely with the CIO every day. We make sure that our folks have what they need, especially during the pandemic. We found that our employees needed um, top IT equipment, whether it was cell phones, monitors. We enhanced our video conferencing for our attorneys who had to handle hearings and expert witness prep. We made sure that they had the equipment that they need, and we are constantly reevaluating that. Got it. And let's back up for a minute, because every federal agency has the issue of hiring people and There's turnover, there's expansion of budgets for different missions that might come from what strikes Congress as important, and it goes on and on. And the hiring process is often cited as an issue, the slowness, the relative slowness that it takes. How do you go about that, making sure that the hiring experience is such that when people are finally arriving as new employees, they feel good about it? Well, we have approximately 117,000 employees. So we do quite a bit of hiring and we are constantly um, hiring. Now, right now, as you know, we are competing with the private sector and other agencies. So we are always on the lookout at for top talent. We have made sure that we bring our folks on board in and sometimes in a virtual environment where we do our orientations virtually now so that we can bring all folks from across the country um, into so they can meet and come together on the mission of the agency while going through the orientation process. But what about hiring? You know, it takes a long time from someone, say, going to usajobs.gov if that's their route in. Do you use hiring authorities? Do you use consistent with merit principles? But what do you do to try to speed it all up so people, so you're more competitive with with the private sector? Well, sometimes the private sector can hire faster. You're correct about that. But we try to do as best as we can in terms of um, getting our positions posted. We have great HR specialists to do the best that they can within the um, federal regulations. We certainly Make sure that those folks who need a security clearance have their paperwork filled out and that they work with our specialists to get all the documentation, fingerprints, et cetera, to HR so that we can move that faster. But you're right. Sometimes the federal hiring does take longer than the private sector, and that's something that we take into account in our hiring. In many cases, then, it becomes a matter of selling the mission as much as selling the job. Oh, absolutely. And here at Department of Justice, we have a fabulous mission. And because of that, we have so many different types of jobs around the country, and in fact, around the world. But that also makes recruitment a considerable challenge. We have a lot of people that are attracted to our mission. So for many of our positions, we get a lot of applicants, which is good. But we're always searching for top talent. And then there is the issue of retention, which is changes, I guess, the challenges of retention throughout an employee's particular career, what might 
retain someone who's new in their career or at the younger age of the age spectrum might be different than what it takes to retain someone mid-career or late career. How do you look at that? How do you think about that challenge, the retention challenge? Well, it's a challenge, but we do a fairly good job retaining our workforce. We provide our employees with the opportunity to do interesting work that connects to our mission, and we make sure that we reinforce this with our employees. One thing that we do regularly is we encourage our supervisors and managers to practice good performance management where they connect the employee's duties and their standard and elements with the mission of the agency. So it constantly gives the employees that connection back to the mission of what we do here at the department. Another thing that we do is we offer a lot of training for our employees. We encourage them to seek out training, to work with their supervisors, to identify in training that they're interested in. We also encourage them, if they're interested in the leadership opportunities, to seek out programs that they can uh, look at opportunities where they could be a leader, whether it's being a team lead or supervisory or actually later going into the senior executive service. In fact, we have a department-wide program named the LEAP program, the Leadership Excellence and Achievement Program, which has been very successful over the last several years. Okay, and let's talk about training for a minute in terms of how it's delivered, because with people remote or teleworking, do you have opportunities for people to take training that doesn't require them to travel or be in person? Yes, we do. In fact, that's a good point. You know, before the pandemic, we did a lot of training that was in person. When Obviously, when the pandemic came, we had to immediately shift for those employees who weren't at the workforce on the work site. But let me back up for a minute. Over 70% of our employees showed up at the work site every day during the pandemic. But that other 30%, yes, we did have to look at how we were giving our training. And we found that virtual training was very successful. Um, We were able to train a number of employees across the country And we found a lot of people participated in that, even though they were extremely busy and dealing with challenges, perhaps in their their home environment. What we found was if we did training modules in anywhere from a 60 to 90 minute increments, we got a lot of interest from our employees. So that was very exciting. Catherine Emerson, Deputy Attorney General and Chief Human Capital Officer at the Justice Department. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career 
at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.